I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Nicholas Gage is your nightmare edition. It's Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. On today's show, Dream Scenario features, it's a feature film, and it features Nicholas Gage as a middle-aged schlemiel who begins appearing in everyone's dreams, making him suddenly world famous. It's from the Norwegian director Christopher Borgli. And then Emily Wilson is the great translator of the Odyssey. She returns with a new version of the Iliad, and she will join us to discuss I Cannot Wait. And finally, imagine a film that's well-liked by test audiences. It was delivered by the director totally on budget, and the word is it's actually good. Well, why was Coyote v. Acme dumped by its studio, Warner Brothers, in favor of a $30 million tax write-off? Now, there's more late-breaking news on that story But that's the essential piece there. We'll get to it. Joining me today first, though, is Isaac Butler, who is the host of The Working Podcast and the author of The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. Amazing. (laughs) He knew the subtitle without looking. High and down low. (laughs) It's it's amazing. And you know what? That's a great way to celebrate the fact that as we are recording this episode, it's coming out in paperback. It's literally out in paperback now. It just came out today or yesterday for those of you who are listening to this. Uh, So you can now get it in a slightly more affordable and much more portable uh, form. Uh And you know what my Homeric epithet is, right? Yeah. Steve blows no smoke Metcalf, and this is not by blowing no smoke here. As Dana's book was really legitimately an impressive book, so too is yours. Thank you so much. Really, it's a tremendously well-done book. I really, really appreciate that, and it is so uh, exciting to cement my SFOP status uh, (laughs) by guesting again here on the show. Let's fop away, and of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic of Slade and the author of, okay, let me see if I could do it. Even I don't know my subtitle. (laughs) cameraman one word then you followed it ingeniously with a colon <laughs> actually and i buster just keaton and the invention of the 20th century buster keaton the dawn of cinema okay. and the invention of the 20th hey, century. hey i was close <laughs> i was close and can i just say the dawn of cinema was the publisher's yeah. insertion and i think it's a little bit too long but but, mm. but, there, but it's you know what's not too long though is the book i just wanted more and more and more of it Oh, mm. thank you. Uh, and we should also say we're recording this in person. I know. Which is incredible. Hence the giddiness and the raillery. Yeah. Um, well, let's see if we can keep that going. And uh, let's make a show. Yeah. All right. Well, for arbitrary reasons, you or more precisely an image of you becomes almost universally known. Instant fame follows perks of celebrity, maybe. Then public opinion, it drifts a little. Then it shifts. Then it craters and you make a crucial misstep in reaction and congrats you now no longer enjoy anonymity you have zero anonymity and you're widely reviled in the movie dream scenario the cycle of virality comes with a surreal twist the character paul matthews played by nicholas cage has started appearing randomly in other people's dreams then apparently in nearly everybody's dreams the film is a dark comedy from the Norwegian director, Chris Borgley. Let's listen to a clip. You'll hear Nicholas Cage as Paul Matthews, and he's addressing his students who have all apparently been dreaming about him. Let's have a listen. Who's certain they've actually had a dream about me? Okay, let's explore this. This might get us somewhere interesting. Does anyone want to share the content of their dream? Yes, you? Well, um, <clears throat> I'm in this forest, wandering around, eating these strange mushrooms. And I'm in, like, a full tuxedo for some reason. 
And there's other people also dressed up, but they're all scared, like frozen in fear. And then I realize it's because of this really tall man running towards me. Mike, are you talking to me? Yes. Paul, oh, he'll kill us. Paul, oh. I've never seen these. Beautiful. And that's all I remember. Ah, <laughs> huh. interesting. So I'm looking at the mushrooms instead of helping. Oh, uh, I suppose, yeah. Okay. That passivity becomes an important driver in its own ironic way in the film. And I should say that that sequence, Dane, is accompanied by, you know, us entering visually into the dream space of the kid as he narrates it in uh, in a wake world. Uh, Dana, let me start with you. This is uh, this curious film and an interesting turn for Nicolas Cage at Star. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think as a turn for Nicolas Cage, it's of a piece with his last movie, which we talked about on the show, which was The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. I think a more successful movie than this one, although not completely successful, but similar in that, you know, it was a way of seizing on Nicolas Cage's particular star persona uh, and his essentially his reputation for, you know, putting it all out there, for being over-the-top weird actor who chooses weird projects, which he's really leaning into at this point in his career, right? So that's one thing to note about it, is that, you know, if you're sort of a collector of Nicolas Cage weirdness, this is certainly something to add to your collection. But that's a separate question from whether the movie itself is is successful in what it's setting out to do. And I'm really curious what you do think, because although I'm glad this movie exists in the ecosystem because it is original um, and sort of small scale, I don't know what it's setting out to do, and I'm not sure that it accomplishes it. it, it it's funny that it's, it's an A24 movie that is produced in part by Ari Aster because it almost reminds me in some ways mm-hmm. of a smaller-scaled and cozier Bo is Afraid. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the premise is very similar in a way, yeah. right? It's a shaggy dog kind of loser hero who can't win no matter what he does, and the humor comes from watching him get beaten up by life in all these horrifying ways. And it's all an allegory for something, but we don't quite know what. And I think this movie is at its strongest when it inhabits that space of ambiguity. In the last third or so, it starts to lock down what the allegory was supposed to mean the whole time. And to me, it turns out to be this somewhat impoverished and disappointing ending that has to do with, you know, social media and marketing and social satire and things that feel too familiar and too small for the hugeness of the movie's premise. What if somebody started showing up in everyone's dreams, right? Mm-hmm. That is that is actually a great kind of fantasy, horror, yeah. sci-fi type premise. And to have it shut down to where it's just sort of about influencers, and I won't get into what happens it too deeply at the end, but, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of satire of sort of... Um, red pill online types, you know, Joe Rogan's show, uh, you know, wellness influencer, young people, things like that. And I'm not quite sure how the analogy of being in everyone's dreams and being online actually fits together. In other words, there wasn't a kind of satisfying click Mm -hmm. for me in this movie where those two things came together. It all just sort of like faded off toward the end. Yeah, that's interesting. See, to me, I, I, I liked that. Uh, about it i really like this movie i think it is it is very much like a an early film it's the director's uh, i i think third movie i should also say in, in full disclosure and to plug i recently interviewed him uh chris borgley he'll be actually the guest on this week's working ab- about the making of this movie 
It is openly indebted to Charlie Kaufman. It's the kind of movie yeah. that Charlie Kaufman has not been capable of making in a very long time. So it's nice to have another one of those around. Uh, uh, so we don't have to keep watching. Um, I'm thinking of ending things. But, you know, to me, I thought it's like really multi-layered and really complicated at looking at fame and male inadequacy and ego and all of these things and how they interrelate. And I think actually part of its sort of, to me, hilarious central joke is this incredible thing is happening, which is this man has, through no skill of his own or anything, started appearing in everyone's dreams. And of course, immediately all our culture can think to do is figure out how to commodify it and turn it into something that someone can make money off of or to turn it into TikTok memes or whatever. It's like this profound thing is going on. And of course, the cultural response to it is to cheapen it as much as possible. And like, to me, I thought that the way that that then melded with what they've done with the character, which is this person who thinks he's deserving of great things, despite having never accomplished anything or even really tried to accomplish anything. Right. And then also becomes persecuted because part of his passivity is he has actually done nothing wrong, but everyone starts thinking he's done something wrong. Like all of that to me, it's like right. every single moment in it means more than one thing in this really mysterious, I don't know, interesting way. I agree that the ending of the film sort of feels like a search for the ending of a movie. It's like at some point the movie has to end, you know? Um, uh, uh, but right up until we get to those final kind of 10 minutes I um, I really enjoyed it I think Nicolas Cage I think all of the acting is actually pretty amazing in it um, and uh, that I agree with without Nicolas Cage I don't think this could possibly work maybe Joaquin Phoenix could pull it off yeah and what's interesting is you know to, because I talked to Chris about this is that you know it was not actually written for Nicolas Cage and most of the script was not rewritten once he was cast but they did work really closely on the conceptualization of the character and he did give some notes so for example there there's one scene where uh, Paul Matthews's character wakes up and there's just someone in his bedroom. Like he's famous mm-hmm. and someone has just broken into his house and is in his bedroom. Right. And that scene was always in the script. But Nick Cage said, oh, that's actually happened to me. Mm. One time I woke up and there was someone in my bedroom. And Chris Borgley was like, well, in my script, you know, is the way you react is was that realistic to that experience? He goes, no, what I did was this. And so they changed it, you know? So I just think it's like, I don't know. I think it's a really interesting melding of sensibility between writer, director, and star, and it looks great. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Steve, you made a hilarious face when I said I was taken with this movie. So I think I'm, a, for the second week in a row, going to be a movie's lone defender as you destroy it as you take a bat to this lego castle that i've made so go down and swing a, away go down in a blaze of glory it uh i hated this movie too i mean, mean what is it too cruel the film yeah in a sense yes though okay. i want to get at why i mean i i loved what you said about and dana also you sort of indicated like the rich like pregnant possibilities and sort of foreboding and weirdness of the premise which is wonderful right very seductive um, and the eye with which Borgley sees the way in which the world changes for a person who, through no special gift of their own, transitions from an extreme of anonymity and underachievement to universal fame, how other people treat him is fascinating and start to treat him. The heat that comes off of someone who has that kind of fame, um, the glory sort of hits others in the face and they enjoy basking in it in this way that I think is an accurate commentary on humanity. My problem with the movie is in order to make what I think was in Borgley's mind, this ideal of a certain kind of allegory work, he decided 
to make it as extreme as possible. And this person embodies anonymity and kind of thwarted middle-aged masculinity. He's a mouth breather. He's paunchy. He's got this weird, like, tonsure baldness, like the least attractive male pattern balding a human being could possibly have. He's not funny. He's terribly self-centered. One of the most revealing and I think best lines in the movie is he meets an old colleague from decades back who he believes has stolen his work. And he sort of he flinches at something she says and she just says, still looking for the insult and everything, right? Yeah. I mean, he's just a characteristically pathetic human being. And what's fascinating about that scene, an example of where how clever I think the movie is at its best, it's right before she sits down, we see him rehearse the entire encounter. Yeah. Because when you see Nicolas Cage first in this movie, the performance is actually kind of big. He has this, for a character who's so beaten down, it's like profoundly beaten down. He has this weird adenoidal voice. He's actually wearing a prosthetic nose mm-hmm. that's just slightly different from his real nose you know all this stuff but what you realize is that the character sort of like walter white is like pretending to be happy being a schlemiel but that's but that's a revealing comparison because i kept thinking of walter white the premise of that show and the reason that show works is that walter white got did get fucked over his ip got stolen from him and made other people rich he's been beaten down for a long time and then the trigger of knowing he's going to die inevitably liberates him under this nietzschean ubermensch that's within him and his resentment flips and he begins to strangle the baby in the crib and live and we're implicated in that joy the dark horrible joy of this man realizing his deformed will to power in the world this movie doesn't not this movie's not obligated to be breaking bad but this movie makes this guy so dislikable it made me keep thinking about its makers thinking that anonymity is a fate worse than death and it made me think borgley's Norwegian is not Hollywood, but it made me angry at like Hollywood and the hmm. fame machine that this is the state of your imagination. You've made it impossible for us to like this person. The alienation effect is in full swing in this movie. You despise the Nicolas Cage character. You don't even pity him. He's just grotesque. And he also is so tiny in affect that he has no chance to grow into something new over the course of the film. Well, he keeps being offered the chance to do that and rejecting it. And he can't it. do yeah. it. I mean, one of the things, one of the funniest running jokes to me in the movie is that um, Julianne Nicholson, who plays his wife, who I think is also kind of extraordinary in this movie. She's she really good in this movie. Yeah. She keeps saying to people, we're not those kind of people who like attention. We're not those kind of people who want attention. And you, you could just see the look on Nicolas Cage's face where he's like, are we, I'm a person who wants attention. Like, why, you know, uh, yeah, no, of course I don't want attention, but of course he does. I don't know. I was really charmed by it. And as, as mean and dark as it is, and as much and as despicable as that character is, I, uh, I don't know. I, I, maybe I like dark European comedy. I, don't know. I mean, I felt pity for the character at Once times, but, but I think, it. I think what Steve is speaking to is that the movie itself doesn't always seem exactly clear how it feels about the character, how sorry we're supposed to be for him. You know, when the cancel culture analogy, which I think is very ham handed, starts entering toward the, the last third of the movie, we're not sure if we're supposed to judge the cancelers or cancel him ourselves, or it just seems like it, the movie wants to to brush up against these, you know, hot social issues and not quite come down on either side. So 
I found the ending really unsatisfying to the point that I thought it undid some of the interesting stuff that had come before. All of that said, it's a fun movie to debate, as we're seeing right now. And I would say if people are curious about Cage and what he's up to in his career, they should go see it. Yeah, it's funny. I found that ambiguity so rich and provocative and and, and interesting. Like that mm. to me is part of what makes the movie work is is that it's, it is somewhat poker faced about, about a bunch of that stuff. And you have to figure out your relationship to it. That's true. Fair enough. I will say there's one final dream sequence in the movie that to me did have an enormous power and like real pathos and I'll leave it there. But um, all right, the movie is Dream Scenario. It stars Nicolas Cage. It's in theaters now. Check it out. Uh, Shoot us an email if you think we're grotesquely off base in our judgments or if you you agree with them, you could do it too. All right, let's move on. All right, before we go any further, this is typically the moment in our podcast where we discuss business. Dana, what, uh, what do you have over there? Steve, all we have is to tell listeners about our Slate Plus segment this week. This week, we're going to talk about Now and Then, which is the new, it's being billed as the last Beatles song, an old John Lennon demo that has just been remixed and re-released with the two surviving Beatles and a little bit of um, George's voice from the past. Most interestingly and most disturbingly, it was also made into a music video by the director Peter Jackson. He of Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit movies, Heavenly Creatures, etc., etc., uh, with some AI CGI technology that we found disturbing and fascinating. So we will talk about the song, the music video, and the technology that made them possible. If you're a Slate Plus member, stay tuned for that conversation at the end of this episode. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, remember that you can always sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. What do you get when you sign up? You get ad-free podcasts, so you never have to hear me plug insurance again. You also get bonus content like the segment I just described, which many, many Slate shows uh, offer as well. And you get unlimited access to all of the writing and all of the podcasting on Slate.com. When you're a Slate Plus member, you're supporting the magazine, you're supporting us, and you're supporting all of our brilliant colleagues. So please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. All right, onward. All right, well, Emily Wilson is a writer, a translator, a classicist, and professor of classical studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's, uh, of course, widely known for her extraordinary translation of Homer's The Odyssey, which came out in 2018. She's now followed that up with a translation of the Iliad, the Homeric epic, of course, about martial glory and human futility. Emily, welcome back to the show. It's lovely to be back. I really, truly mean it when I say I have the fondest memories of your first segment with us a number of years ago for The Odyssey. That was really a memorable segment. So it's our real pleasure and really honored to have you back. I was wondering, can we start just with a a reading? Can you pick a passage and read it for us? I think that would be a a wonderful way to dip in here and get moving. Sure. So I was going to read just a as you know, the Homeric poems are full of wonderful extended similes and also full of wonderful catalogues or lists of things. So the poetics depends on both those features, which can be quite alien to a modern reader. So I'm going to read one of those wonderful similes, first a tiny bit in Greek and then in my translation. Ton tos ten ifades hionos piptosita meiai, emeti kemerio, hotedorita metiata zeus nifemen, anthropoisi pifoscomenosta kela. As snow falls thickly in a winter storm when Zeus creates a blizzard and reveals his weapons to humanity and lulls the winds to sleep and sends perpetual snow until the highest mountain peaks and rocks and fertile farms and meadows lush with clover are covered 
and the snow is spread across the rocky shore, the bays, the grey salt sea, and blocks the waves from beating on the beach. Everything, everywhere, is blanketed with snow when juice on high weighs down the world. So thickly flew the stones that both sides hurled, the Trojans at the Greeks, the Greeks at Trojans. Can I just start with a kind of large question? In uh, your quite beautiful introduction to this uh, edition of the Iliad, you talk about, I mean, if, if one thinks of anything as transcending the vicissitudes of taste, one would think Homer would be it. And yet there were there was no complete translation of the Iliad in English until the 17th century. This is an essentially different poem from the Odyssey that must have presented very different challenges. Talk about its character as a work of poetic art and language, and then a little bit about how different your approach might have been this time. Um, with this text rather than the Odyssey? The Iliad is longer and so much more intense. Um, It's much more intense emotionally. It's all about these very, very extreme emotions of intense rage, intense grief, intense desire to kill and to be remembered forever. Um, It's also so intense sonically and in, in these kinetic ways. It's all about movement and all about the tactile sensations of, of pain and of brightness in the air. So I wanted to convey those intensities and also the way it's so claustrophobic. But the Odyssey is spread out over a much longer time period and its setting is so much wider. Whereas the Iliad, we're always confined to the battlefield or the besieged city or the um, Greek encampment. So I wanted to make sure that I had a poetic voice which could, you know, as in Spinal Tap, it has to go up to 11. (laughs) So I I spent a long time just doing drafts and drafts and drafts and experimenting with line length and experimenting with voice and register to try to make sure it's extremely intense but not funny when it shouldn't be. That it shouldn't just feel that we're laughing at these weird people for screaming all the time, but instead we're able to fully inhabit the world of this strange but very, very deeply human poem. You know, one thing you discuss in the intro is, of course, you know, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey were meant to be delivered orally. That someone's supposed to be reciting it uh, from memory. You know, you're so, you the way that early people would have encountered this is hearing it out loud. And we got to hear you say some of it out loud in Greek, which was really beautiful and amazing. I'm curious about two things, I guess. One is kind of how you split the difference between the orality and, you know, people reading it on the page. And the the other thing is how you translate that musicality to a language, English, that has just like totally different phonemes. Right. And from hexameter to pentameter, right? Yeah. So one of my big motives for doing these translations at all was that I was frustrated, you know, in the classroom with the fact that most 20th and 21st century translations of Homer into English have been in either prose or free verse. I mean, if you think of the Robert Fagel's ones, they don't have a regular meter. Same for the Richmond Latimer ones. So I wanted to use a very regular, very audible um, pentameter because I felt that that would tap into the same sense of this is a traditional poetic form which has a long history in the language in which I'm writing English, just as dactylic hexameter in Greek had a long history of oral poetic storytelling and invited reading out loud. As you say, in antiquity, Homer was almost always experienced as a performance, quasi-dramatic um, set of poems. 
So I wanted to trigger the reader to want to read out loud, even if you're not listening to the great audiobook. And I also wanted to echo other features which I think are possible to do in English, such as alliteration and assonance. I mean, in that passage I just read about the snow, there's a lot of alliteration in the original, and I can't alliterate with exactly the same um, phonemes, because as you say, they're completely different languages. But I can echo that quali- those qualities of metricality, even if it's a different meter, and of alliteration, even if it's alliteration with different sounds. I have a question, Emily, about something that, if I understand correctly, you did differently in this translation than in your Odyssey translation, which is that you, in your previous Homer translation, you tried to keep one line of Greek to one line of English in the translation, and that you've decided to do more sort of, you know, enjambment, I guess you'd call it, like bumping part of a line to the next line, and been, been a little bit looser with that. And, uh, and I wonder if, first of all, do I have that right? And secondly, why did you make that choice? Yes. So I felt with both of these translations that I wanted to be thinking about pacing all the time, because I think the rapid pace of the Homeric poems is essential to the qualities of the original, that you're always wanting to hear the next line. It's carrying you forward. It's never boring. It never feels padded. And I think some translations feel a bit padded. But with the Iliad, I realized that the kind of compression that was entailed in going from from hexameter original to a pentameter translation, I I had to use more shorter words to make the math work. And I tried doing that at first with the Iliad, and I realized this is not going to work, partly because there are so many names in the Iliad, there are more names than there are in the Odyssey. And of course, there's a reason for that, because name matters in this poem. People die for their names. The whole social network is men being connected to other men through the names of their fathers, the names of their comrades and companions and the men who follow them. And I didn't want to lose those names. I didn't want also to reduce the repeated epithets. I mean, I I wanted Agamemnon, son of Atreus, and swift-footed Lord Achilles to be repeated over and over. And in order to do that, I felt I just need a few more lines. Um, I can still think about pace and rapidity, but I I need a little bit more flexibility in terms of how many lines do I take to get there. Emily, I saw a wonderful exercise that I think you authored where um, translations of the Iliad in, in, into English from different eras, different authors were placed sort of side by side, including a selection from yours. I mean, on a totally first pass, it proves how much discretion and, and art really goes into creating a translation. Um, it's just evident from your reading how much you love this poem. And it at some point, it's engaging a creative urge within you, even though in some reductive sense and maybe overly gendered sense, this is a poem devoted to glorious displays of masculine violence and pitilessness. But of course, it's not only about that. So maybe talk a little bit about, not only about the technical challenges of translating it, but sort of the artistic and, I don't know, kind of creative and emotional challenges of of engaging with uh, this work of art. I mean, I think I've already talked a little bit about the technical challenges of echoing rhythmicality, music, um, the sounds of words in a a language where all the words sound different. Um, But then there were also the quasi-novelistic challenges of trying to think one's way into what does it feel like to be this person? How would this character talk? I mean, so the, the question of what do I do for that word 
I felt it always has to be considered in the context of how does this whole speech sound? What does Achilles sound like? In the Greek, Achilles talks differently from other characters. There's a real distinctiveness to how does Agamemnon speak versus how does Hector speak? Those are different. I felt I had to have, in a way, a sort of emotional exercise of empathy, of thinking my way into this is how this character feels in this moment. And in order to write them, I had had to be able to inhabit them. And that was also just one of the most exhilarating challenges of this project was thinking my way into each of these characters and feeling what it might feel like to to be Hector insisting on risking his life even though he knows he might die and even though he knows his city will be destroyed and his child will be held from the city walls and his wife will be enslaved. He knows those things will happen but he's driven by this sense of of duty or fear of shame, terror of not being the best warrior. Those kinds of exercises of thinking your way into what does it feel like, I felt were essential in order to get the, the words right. Fascinating. I mean, wh- one other thing that, that I think comes up is, you know, you're trying to render this language very present and accessible to the reader in much the same way that it would be if you were hearing it out loud, right? You know, that that, that it needs to be very direct. The idiom's somewhat contemporary, not a lot of highfalutin language. You talk about, for example, translating the army as the Greeks, even though the original word is, is a more obscure one to us. Um, and at the same time, it is an ancient culture, two ancient cultures, very foreign culture, you know, uh, different ethics, different ideas, different values, different social uh, organization. And language, of course, has all that stuff embedded into it. So I'm just sort of curious about your process of threading that needle, mostly because it sounds nearly impossible. Mm-hmm. I think it is impossible, but I also think, I mean, I thought I had to wrestle with the questions of what kinds of strangeness and alienness are interesting? And also, how do you get the modern reader to the, to the strange? I felt that there are kinds of clarity that can help you see more clearly how weird is this society. And I felt if, you, if you're held up right from the start by, oh, the syntax is kind of weird because she's writing in a way that echoes the word order of the original, even when it's normal word order in the original and not normal word order in English, I felt that's actually not a very interesting kind of strangeness. And it's going to inhibit you seeing the more interesting kinds of strangeness, like why are they doing animal sacrifice again? And what exactly is going on about the representation of divine manifestations in human life? So I I felt that it's, it's, of course, impossible to replicate every element. And I had to prioritise. These are the ones that I think are going to make for the most interesting, satisfying, re-readable and performable um, kinds of combination of alienness and familiarity or recognizability. Okay, because we're talking about orality and performance, I have to drop in a plug here for Audra McDonald's audiobook reading of this book, Emily, which I know you admire enormously too, and you were thrilled that she was snagged as the reader. Goddess, sing of the cataclysmic wrath of great Achilles, son of Peleus, which caused the Greeks immeasurable pain and sent so many noble souls of heroes to Hades and made men the spoils of dogs, a banquet for the birds. And so the plan of Zeus unfolded. I just have to tell you that in our house, that is on high rotation right now. It's basically just the book that we're all listening to. And as we wander in and out of the living room, we'll just hear Audra, you know, giving some sort of list of incredibly gory <laughs> battlefield kills out of context. Describing and, uh, that shield. It's like, play play Achilles' shield again. Play that shield, baby. Let's cue I mean, up the shield. Sometimes I don't even know whose, you know, golden guts are being spilled <laughs> like wine upon the ground. But it's always somebody's. <laughs> 
Emily, I, I have to, before we lose you, I have to ask one more question. You've translated the Odyssey. You've translated the Iliad. And Sophocles and, and Seneca. And on and on and on. But, but these are like, where do you where do you go next? Yeah. Do you translate like... The Aeneid? Joyce's Ulysses <laughs> back into <laughs> Greek or... No, Latin. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do the Aeneid either because I think there are already some good translations of the Aeneid. Um, I might do the Argonautica one day, but I'm not sure. I might do some Homeric hymns. Right now I'm doing some retellings of all the myths that don't make it into the Homeric poems. So it's a sort of fiction book um, telling about all these things which are in the background in the Iliad but aren't in the foreground. All right, Emily Wilson, um, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, her translation of the Iliad is out now. Please, please go seek it out, as well as her uh, extraordinary translation of the Odyssey. Emily, thanks for coming back on the show, and we'd love to find an excuse to have you back sometime soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Okay, rare is, I mean, New Yorker humor pieces are can be very funny, very good and very elegant. It's rare that you remember one for 30 years. But in 1990, Ian Fraser, a freaking national treasure, I mean, one of the truly great, to this day, nonfiction writers out there, did a New Yorker uh, humor piece called Wiley Coyote versus Acme, which of course was, I mean, you almost immediately get where he's going to go with it. He does it. He just executed that piece so beautifully, which is Wiley Coyote keeps using these Acme products to try to get his nemesis Roadrunner and they keep blowing up in his face or whatever. So he, of course, is going to litigate. Um, well, here we are 30 years later. Someone appears to have made a perfectly good mid-budget, high mid-budget movie using that IP. Uh, Coyote v. Acme, a Warner Brothers picture, budgeted... I've read 65, 70, 75, whatever it was, million dollars. It's brought in at budget by the director. It's screened for test audiences. It grades in the 90s, which is, you know, sort of people seem to think it's actually a good movie and Warner Brothers shelves it. Um, Dana, I know that when we first thought about doing the shelving of this film, it was sort of about the art-hating imperatives of um, Hollywood. I should say it was in favor of a $30 million tax write-off. So someone ran some numbers, I guess, and determined that we're better off with the $30 million, uh, in the hand than this thing making $200 million in order to get us that money back. Dana, the story has changed a little bit since we decided to talk about it. Now it looks as though they're going to allow the film to be shopped uh, other studios and outlets. Nonetheless, we like a good art-hating segment. Talk to me about what <laughs> What attracted you to this? Yeah, I mean, I actually think that maybe it makes it richer to talk about that the the decision has been walked back because I feel like that speaks in a way to the writers and actors strikes that just ended, right? David Zaslav, who's the head of Warner Brothers Discovery and who ultimately made this decision, and also, it should be said, made the decision to do the exact same thing with two big movies last year with Batgirl and the Scooby-Doo movie. I can't remember. Scoob, Haunted House. Isn't that what it's called? Um, Those got killed in August of 2022 for the same reason. And it was presented at the time as, oh, well, this is just a one-off thing that we have to do to solve some sort of fiscal crisis that we're at. Um, I think that 
this really hit a lot harder because it's happening after the strikes. David Zaslav has become a real kind of, I think, villain in the eyes of a lot of people and on the labor side of the entertainment industry. And it makes it look like this is going to be a regular thing, yeah. right? Like making thousands of artists. If you think about the somebody who's making a big combination live action animated movie, which this was, right? I mean, it requires the voice actors, the animators, obviously, like the composers, the sound mixers, everybody who's involved uh, has now created this work that goes nowhere. So they get their initial payment for having done the work, but they get no back end, right? It's it's and and they get no reputational boost from having made something that somebody can give them a job based on in the future. So it really is, as you say, sort of the art haters' decision. I mean, yeah, I I think the reason the other reason why this struck a chord is I don't believe that those other two movies were actually finished. Like I think the Batgirl or Batwoman needed some reshoots and some VFX hadn't been put in or anything. Whereas this is actually like a finished complete Mm -hmm. movie they've tested it it's done the score's written it's mixed like it's ready to go and they were just like oh no and so you know movies get shut down all the time they've always gotten shut down as long as there's been studios making movies but the idea that you would have a finished one and they just sort of literally you know drag it to the trash on their mac desktop or something uh uh, and also because the underlying logic of doing this is so clear the reason why it's anti-art is of course if you think of these things as widgets and uh, instead of movies and it's just like, well, lighting it on fire makes us as much money as releasing it. So let's just light it on fire. Uh, like the underlying logic there is, of course, an anti-art one, because then you're like, you know, you're just in the business of moving things around. I, I will also say, though, as a as a critic, it sucks to have to go to bat for movies like Scoob and Batgirl and Coyote versus Acme. But the truth of the matter, you know, like like those feel like to a certain extent, barely movies. But but the truth of the matter is I have heard rumors from people in the industry that this is actually happening to smaller movies too, and we just aren't hearing about it because the budgets are smaller, the directors are less powerful, they're really afraid, they've signed NDAs, you know, but there are other movies that are being made, shot, they're in the can, and then they're just being uh, tossed aside for for the tax write-off. That, 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 that is a thing. So we do, unfortunately, have to man the barricades for Scoob Haunted Mansion because first they came for Scoob Haunted Mansion and I said nothing. You know, et cetera, but wait, et cetera, I, I mean, as somebody who over the course of my career as a critic has often been surprised by a movie that sounds on paper like it would be a- absolutely silly and terrible, uh, I, I, I don't mind going to bat for them because the point should be that you take a risk when you make a movie, right? right? It could be good. It could be bad. Maybe it'll flop at the box office. Maybe it'll become, you know, the Ishtar of its day and be laughed at for decades and then later discovered as a masterpiece. Who knows? But but the risk is the point, right? Yes. And, yeah. and the idea just almost s- symbolically, right, that, that really, really powerful executives at the big five or however many three studios there are left are, are saying, oh, yeah, these are just widgets that we move around and burn and everybody that created them, you know, can, can suck it. I mean, that is anti-art. <laughs> In, totally. its, in its essence, whether the movie at the end of the day is good it, or not. We don't re- right. release and, movies because and, they're good. Look how many bad movies are but, out there on the market to, now. To defend the people at the studio a little bit before I demolish them as Philistines, the truth is it takes an enormous upfront outlay and therefore financial risk to make a film. And you cannot know from what you read on the page or the roster of talent you know, attached to it whether you're going to, and you may even make a brilliant movie, Dana, exactly that, the vicissitudes of the public's mood being what they are. You just have no idea how to control that risk exactly. I mean, what I, a couple things I find interesting about this is that 
I've been eternally working on a book about the 1980s, one part of which was about the transition Hollywood made very, very dramatically between, let's say, 1971 and 1983, when the kind of movie being greenlit in Hollywood changed radically by 81, 82, 83, you're into the high-concept blockbuster era. Interestingly, Don Simpson, an executive at the time, I believe at Warner, no, Paramount, sorry, wrote a very infamous memo in which he said, and it can only be infamous because no one had said it, and it was considered radical to say it, and in retrospect, it did reorient the film business. He said, I need to remind everyone that the purpose of making Hollywood movies is to make money. And that was thought of as quite radical, which lets you know that the kind of art sensibility, you know, we're not television, was one of the guiding ethos of the film industry since the 1950s and the rise of television as a competitive medium. We are not that, we're something else. And that became highly refined and self-conscious with the director movement in the 60s and 70s. And what Simpson was saying is that era is over. And people were horrified. But in the end, he was right. And funnily enough, Eisner, two or three years later, wrote the exact same memo and became equally notorious for it. So what I find interesting is that theatrical release filmmaking is in such a different place now. I don't think theatrical release movie making knows exactly what it is, who its audience is, and how to reliably get them into a movie theater. And that creates a totally different risk profile financially and at an existential moment in the history of the medium commercially i kind of understand by 30 million in the hand what's weird about this one is this movie might have been a hit you're testing in the 90s unless that's bullshit and it doesn't seem to be that's what's incredible to me maybe it's the next who frame roger rabbit right i mean yeah. it's easy to say that this is some dumb ip property but you know that was an ip property that mixed oh yeah live action this could animation. be a masterpiece. it's now we, did, we now just classic. all went to see barbie and kind of somewhat thrilled to the filmmaking i, I yeah, love I mean, barbie i mean but. the weird the the other weird thing about this i mean Part of this, of course, is that it's impossible to talk about this without talking about David Zaslav and just sort of yeah. like who he has become in the public consciousness since the merger between Discovery and Warner Brothers put him, who came from the Discovery side, which is to say from the most bargain basement squeezed out of a tube shit side of television and then put him in charge of the most prestigious brand in television, yeah. HBO, yeah. and Warner Brothers Studio. And he has – it's appeared – you know, uh, uh, treated those things like he's angry at them for existing. I mean, the things that he's done on the on the HBO side and on the side of the the Max app. You know, there was the thing where he took directors' names oh, yeah. off the movies, yeah. and Spielberg had to call him, literally call him, and be like, "What are you doing? You have to." You know, the DGA was going to sue. I mean, there's all yeah, these. Yeah, it would say creators, and then it would list like some yeah, below the really line guy weird. before the actual yeah. writer director yeah. of the movie. It, 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 there's a long series of things he's done that that regardless of intent, because who knows what that is, feel contemptuous of the actual art form of of film uh, uh, and of trying to make He tried television. to kill TCM, for God's sake. He tried sake. to kill TCM, yeah. he's yeah. Um, so, uh, and all of those things are done under the excuse of financial pressures. Now, those financial pressures are real, but having come from other imperiled industries like theater and academia, I can tell you that those financial pressures are often used as an excuse to oh. do whatever crazy thing the person in oh, charge, absolutely. you know, has in mind. And so... Um, 
I agree that we're in a precarious point. I think we're in the midst of a really weird transition. We just don't know what's on the other side. A lot of times in those transitions in Hollywood history, good things are on the other side. But like the prestige moment in TV is over. Most TV is terrible now and there's tons of it. Uh, And the very best of it is not that great. Usually Um, the no one knows what's going on with theatrical release. You know, Zaslav said, I want to reorient WB towards theatrical release and then canned this movie that was set to have a big big weekend. Um, it's impossible to tell how much money anything makes on the streaming platforms and stuff. So we're, we're headed somewhere. And I think these kinds of moves are just a reminder that we are in this strange transition crisis mode. And we just don't know what's like on the other side. Like, is this heaven's gate? Yeah, right. No. Or is this uh Dr. Doolittle? But you know, the- it's like, it's like, what, what, what is it? And what is it leading to? And Dana, what strikes me is so notable about this is we haven't just come off of a string of super way over budget bloated you know failure director driven failures the opposite if barbenheimer i mean it just showed you that there's first of all a unique experience to be had in a theater and there's enormous upside to writing maybe not a blank check but a blankish check to a creative talent to do something interesting and lo and behold people flocked back to the theaters I mean, I will say this. This would have been a more hand-wringy segment by far if this decision had not been walked back by Warner Brothers Discovery since we decided to to talk about it, right? So, And apparently that happened in part because of some good old-fashioned pushback from creators. Like apparently a lot of aspiring writer, director, producers who were proposing projects to WBD said, hey, you know what? We're not going to take that meeting with you after all because we have no guarantee that our project isn't going to be canned after thousands of people have put years of work into it. And uh, I think the decision to to shop this Coyote versus Acme movie around, which is now happening and Amazon may pick it up, uh, is happening in part because of a sort of strike-related kind of fuck around and find out scenario, mm. which is which is very satisfying. I mean, there are a few things in 2023 that have that have made it look like the entertainment industry could be turning around this really depressing mm-hmm. dynamic we're yeah. talking about, about everything being, you know, for the stockholders, which are, you know, the two strikes being resolved pretty favorably for the for the union side. Uh, things like, you know, this decision being reversed. And then, as you said, Steve, the Barbenheimer weekend, which was, just, and Taylor Swift as well, which is just proving that, yeah, you know, if you build it, they will come they, to theaters big time. Yeah, very much so. Okay, on that note, optimistic note, um, Coyote v. Acme. <laughs> you can't go see it. It's not in theaters near you, nor is it streaming. But read some of the um, interesting uh, takes on its uh, being 86th. All right, uh, let's move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, I owe this week's endorsement to the collapse of social media, actually, because I want to endorse a site that I previously only knew as a place that would post cool stuff on Twitter. And I don't think I had ever actually gone to explore the place that all of the, that cool stuff was coming from. Do either of you know the Public Domain Review? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's Great a really site, fascinating right? site. It's really, really oh, fun. Oh, what is it? So the Public Domain Review is, it's, well, I'll read from their about page. It's an online journal and not-for-profit project dedicated to the exploration of curious and compelling works from the history of art, literature, and ideas. Specifically, as the name suggests, it's about works that have fallen into the public domain. So it's it's sort of, it's a lot of things. It, um, among other things, it has original essays. It's got some really interesting writing that's created for the site in their kind of essays vertical. But the funnest place to dig in and explore is just their collections, which is, you know, things that are in the public domain. It might be a collection of, you know, 
prints, like nature lithographs from some old book. It might be they've got tons of movies that are in the public domain, which was how I started following them on social media. Um, you know, they've got uh, audio collections of all kinds. It's a little bit like archive.org in a sense, but it is more, I would say, curated. I mean, I love archive.org too, but obviously it's much more of a giant labyrinth that you kind of find your way through. This feels more like somebody is intentionally gathering together um interesting things to look at. So I'll read some of the highlights from their collections listed on their about page. A 15th century herbal of anthropomorphized vegetables, (laughs) a book of Tlingit myths, and the hand-drawn infographics of W.E.B. Du Bois. I don't know what that is, but I assume that, you know, they're like notes taken in his hand. Oh, wow. Anyway, so they're just putting together interesting stuff from the past. And because it's in the public domain, that also means that you can use it. You can remix it. You can, you know, take it and Pop, pop it onto your own website. Anyway, I've just started to scratch the surface of what this site is, and uh, and I really recommend people take a look at it, thepublicdomainreview.org. That sounds amazing. Yeah, very cool. I also think it's so funny that now that Twitter is dying, we're finally clicking on all of those sites that Twitter was supposed to <laughs> direct traffic to. And now we're discovering, oh, wait, this was here this whole time. I, I could have just made the arduous journey to this URL the whole time. <laughs> Dear Martha... Today, we moved closer to clicking on the link to the public domain review. Tonight, we bivouac. (laughs) Tonight, we bivouac in this pass in Montana. Dear Mary has died of typhus. (laughs) It's quite the bit there. Thank you. Thank you. Nice. And Dan kind of ran with it. Little little Ken Burns, little Oregon Trail. What you going to do? I I love it. Isaac, what do you have? Uh, I know that I said earlier that all TV is bad now. That is not, of course, actually true. And so I'm going to recommend a really delightful television show that is uh, streaming on Amazon Prime from Australia called Deadlock. That's D-E-A-D-L-O-C-H. It is an unbelievably funny noir feminist mystery comedy in which a serial killer is uh, hunting within this town in Tasmania. And the only way I can describe it is it's like a working class fishing village that has been gentrified by the most granola crunchy lesbians on earth. Right. So it's like you've got the equivalent of kind of like Southies. Right. And then like Lilith Fair. And the, the whole town is just at war with itself because these are its two big communities. And uh, a serial killer is is striking. So it's about uh, this uh, uh, cop named Dulcie Collins, played by Kate Box, who is trying to navigate this and, and solve this crime and keep her her marriage afloat and all sorts of other things. It is almost indescribably funny. It is like one of those rare shows where my wife and I had to pause it because we were laughing so hard and we were worried about missing the next joke. It's just like it is incredible. And what it does with the tone of being both a successful murder mystery about a serial killer and this incredibly funny farce about, you know, gentrification and class and sexuality and conservative politics and all this other thing. It's, it's, it's really amazing. You wow. Ha- you, Steve and I are scribbling it down. Well, you're as a fan of Tasmania oh God, and all things down under. Ta- I've been twice. Oh, really? To Tasmania. Well, Deadlock is not a real town. Uh, it's a fictitious town in Tasmania, but I believe it was filmed there. So you'll get lots of uh, you'll get lots of good stuff. I don't. Tasmania is not a real state. It just, just sort of exists in the <laughs> it's realm like Brigadoon. of It's very Brigadoony. <laughs> so once again, that's uh, Deadlock. I tell you the people in it who it's from, but you've never heard of any of them unless you're Australian. But they're all Australian comedy people, uh, and it is streaming currently on Amazon Prime. Brills. Okay. 
Uh, so you might remember, listener, that I am a huge, huge fan of uh, the singer songwriter Laura Marling English. Um, I just, think she's, I just think she's so gifted uh, and just brilliant, and I, I swoon for her uh, for her music. Um, I didn't know a song by her called New Romantic, and I just was so digging it. It's just a great acoustic. Um, and I was like, oh, I'd love to see her play it live, right? That this strikes me as a challenging song to play live. Bunch of videos on the internet. And then I saw there was one of her doing it as a total unknown 17 years ago. Oh, wow. And if my math is correct, she's 16 at the oldest 17 years old. But I think if I do the math, she's a 16-year-old kid. Now... I want to say something about Laura Marling, and this is, I mean it when I say it's no shade. It really isn't. I, I mean, I really do kind of worship this person. She is um, the youngest daughter of Sir Charles William Somerset Marling, who is a fifth baronet, according to Wikipedia. And she, and she doesn't sing like that or not sing like that. But in this video at the age of 16, in front of a kind of rowdy sounding live audience, she feels it necessary to put on a cockney accent as she's singing it which is entirely convincing but she like not only de she doesn't just declass herself she reclasses herself and codes herself amazing as, in this way that's really wonderful and totally forgivable if you're 16 and in front of and there's a couple of extraordinary things about it it's just how young she is how beautifully she executes the song but fascinatingly no one knows who this person is right so everyone in the crowd is just talking over her really loudly and like they're not really there to see her and then kind of half a verse or a verse in and especially she gets into the first chorus where her voice starts to really do extraordinary things people understand they're seeing something and someone just aggressively shushes everyone maybe I should give up giving give up trying to be thin Give up and turn into my mother God knows I love her And, and suddenly they're wrapped And then you're like just Not only are you swooning rapidly along with her singing you're waiting for the wonderful moment when this totally indifferent crowd that you sense now has been completely won over is going to erupt and you sense that they're waiting to say fuck it I'm so sorry I, how could I not have paid attention to every note and sure enough they explode into applause and you're like some people just fucking have it yeah I mean, Amazing. I, I don't know about you at 16, Isaac, but like getting the shoes tied and, you know, it was like. I oh, mean, I was Joe Charisma at 16. What are you talking about? I just had command of every room I, I, I walked in. I definitely wasn't awkward with a weird scraggly beard. I had to grow out to play Tevia and Fiddler on the Roof. I, uh, yeah, no, definitely. This is Shade. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, check it out. The song is called New Romantic. All versions of it that Laura Marling does, does is wonderful, but we'll link to the one from 07 when she does it as a 16-year-old noob. All right, Isaac, what a fun show. This was really fun. I'm so glad to be back. I love guest hosting this show. It's really fun, and and I don't... I'm sure we've done segments face-to-face, -face, but an entire show... 
I don't think we I know the only time we've ever done that is the live uh, conversation with me and Dana at the Strand that's what I was remembering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the yeah, only yeah, time. Yeah. That's the only time. No, it's it's like it's like don't take this the wrong way, but it's like the difference between sexting and sex. Well, thank you. I agree. I agree. I feel not that I've euphoric. Ever... I feel spent. <laughs> not, that I feel... Not, not that I've ever done either. But Dana, thank you. Pack up your desks, both of you. <laughs> Dana, thank you so much. That was incredibly fun. Yeah, very lively show. Yeah, really nice. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Isaac Butler, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. 